Welcome, you're listening to the Harvest Community Church Podcast. Whether you attend locally in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, or are just jumping in to listen to this weekend's service, we're so glad you're here. In this Advent season, we're taking time in Isaiah's prophecies, and more specifically, the names given to Jesus in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. He is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Through this season, we want to grow in our relationship with Him and knowledge of our King Jesus so that we can worship and walk with Him, not just as we celebrate Christmas, but throughout the whole year. If you want to join us this holiday season or want to find out more about our church, you can visit us online at harvestcommunity.org. What more then are we to say about these things? Because if God is for us, who's against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us. So how will he not also with him grant us everything? Advent is all about reorienting our focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ and leaving everything else behind. This morning, bringing us into Advent is my friend Dave. Dave was scheduled. I was supposed to be in Israel right now, and Dave was going to be preaching to you. And so I'm glad. I am so glad for multiple reasons that I get to be here and um, hear Dave's preaching. Dave and I have been friends for almost 20 years. We started out playing music for a men's conference, No Regrets Men's Conference at Elmbrook Church, if any of you have been to that back in the day. But we've also been on some adventures in the mountains together, played live music together, and just had a good time. Um, So I really appreciate uh, Dave, and I'm um, excited for you to hear what he has for us in our Advent theme. But I'd like to pray over him and us as we approach the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for Dave and thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit in Dave and thank you for the spirit that inspired your word and thank you for your spirit that brings light to your word. And God, I ask that for Dave, it would be a joyful experience to bring your word, that he would experience freedom on this platform through your spirit. God, I ask that for us, as we sit under your word, it would be an act of worship as we submit to you. We need to hear from you, God. Let us not leave the same we came. Build us up. Refocus us. Do whatever is needed through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Harvest. Thank you so much for letting me be with you this morning. It is really, really great to be with you again. There's some good familiar faces that I get to see. Uh, Thank you, too, for the privilege of being able to open God's word with and for you this morning. Well, like me, I am sure that most of you have noticed that there is this thing that happens right around this time of year. And with every passing year, it seems to happen earlier and earlier. This year, I think I started to see it happen near the end of September. I think I started to hear it happen almost early November. Some of you are in high favor of this early arrival, and then there are others like me who prefer to ease into it, even if it is the most wonderful time of the year. Of course, I'm talking about the sights and the sounds of Christmas. Winter weather came sooner to our region than it usually does. I think this is one of the few times, this year has been one of the few times that I can remember cutting my grass and raking my leaves after the snow had fallen. 
It's not supposed to go like that, even in Wisconsin, right? But along with the early winter weather came what could be seen as just a rejection of all things fall and an attempt to kind of look past this other little holiday that we try to celebrate in this nation, Thanksgiving. So don't don't get me wrong on any of this. I really do love Christmas. And if you put your Christmas tree up in September or you listen to Christmas music year round, Jesus says, I have to love you. So I will. (laughs) But the rule around our house amongst my wife and our son is that there is no Christmas anything until the day after Thanksgiving. Then we get into the car and Christmas music's going and lights are up and all of that. But once the national holiday of Thanksgiving is observed, I'm completely and totally in. And as I've thought about it, I, I think that one reason that people begin celebrating Christmas earlier and earlier each year, apart from maybe the commercial side of it, is that it is filled with so many wonderful and beautiful and beloved traditions, traditions that really capture our hearts and they stir our senses. But if you were to do research on some of our most beloved Christmas traditions, you would discover that many of their origins aren't as romantic or as inspiring as maybe we would want them to be. Many of our favorite traditions actually have pretty simple beginnings. Some of them are actually godless or pagan. And then there are other traditions where it's actually hard to know how they began or even why they have continued. Do you know, as a for instance, that both pagans and Christians have used evergreen trees to celebrate this time of year? Pagans first began using evergreen branches to decorate their homes as a reminder that spring was on the way. But there is also a legend that says that the first person to bring a Christmas tree inside into his home was Martin Luther. One night before Christmas, the legend goes, Luther was walking through the forest and he looked up to see the stars shining through the tree branches. And it was so beautiful that he went home and he told his children that it reminded him of how Jesus left the stars of heaven to come to earth at Christmas. And so he cut a tree down and he brought it inside. Now, because it's a legend, maybe that story is true and maybe it's not. But the bigger question for you and I is, why do you and I put up a Christmas tree? Why do we put up a Christmas tree? Christmas lights were invented in the late 1800s. People used to put lit candles into Christmas trees, which sat on top of a table, a fire hazard to beat all Fire hazards. It is amazing that this nation survived with lit candles inside of trees, inside of homes. And yet, by God's grace, here we are. In 1871, actually, an inventor named Edward Johnson hired a 24-year-old upstart inventor named Thomas Edison. Six years later, Edison actually invented the phonograph or the record player. And nine years later, he went on to invent the light bulb. And inspired by Edison's invention, Johnson strung together 80 red, white, and blue light bulbs likely to give homage to our flag. And he placed them in a tree facing a street side window to the wonder of those passing by. Imagine first seeing these light bulbs with all of their colors and never having seen anything like that before. Today, an estimated 150 million light sets are sold every year. 
mostly because they break down and nobody wants to figure out which bulb is broken. That's my assumption. But the lights serve as a reminder to many of us that Jesus, the light of the world, was born to us on Christmas Day. But is that why you put up Christmas lights? Is that why you put them up? Candy canes are kind of another Christmas staple, though they were not always associated with Christmas. Historically, candy canes began in 1837 as a straight white sugar stick. A straight white sugar stick. Can I get an amen, kids? That's all we need, right? Just give me a stick filled with sugar and I'm all set. I don't care about the shape or the colors. Just make sure it's straightened with sugar. Now, in time, these candy canes grew more popular and some some begun adding a mint flavor to them. But then in 1920, the straight sticks turned into canes, the shape that most of us know them as today. Legend has it that in 1670, a German choir master was worried that the children would not be able to sit quiet during the service, and he wanted to keep keep them occupied, but he also wanted to remind them of Jesus. And so he created the candy cane to look like a shepherd's crook because Jesus was a shepherd, but also if you turn it upside down, it looks like the letter J. Now, the legend of the candy cane actually kind of stops there. But as time has gone on, as we know, more Christian meaning has been ascribed to the candy cane. Who's heard these things? That the white of the candy cane is now meant to represent the purity of Jesus. Yeah. And that the red stripes represent his blood being shed for us on the cross and the whips that he took. And there are even some who say that the peppermint flavor represents the hyssop plant, which was used for cleansing purposes in the Bible to say that we have been cleansed of our sin. But the question is, what do candy canes mean to you? Now, there's one other tradition that I have grown to love and observe in the last two decades of my life. And like Caleb, I don't know how and I don't know why I missed it before, but I did. And of course, we observed it already this morning. It is the observation and the celebration of Advent, which is part of the normal church calendar year. Advent, as Caleb mentioned, comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means simply coming. But specifically, Jesus Christ's coming. And this time of year is a perfect time to remember not only that Jesus came, but to consider why he came. Not only that he came, but why he came. One author said of Advent this way, the process of Jesus saving us from sin, death, and evil begins with Advent, his coming into the world. That is the great Bethlehem event. Not merely the sweet moment of a newborn baby, but God entering into the world to do battle with everything that tears us down. What did we just sing? I'm fighting a battle he has already won because of Advent, because of Emmanuel. Now, in the four Gospels, we hear Jesus himself say that he came for a bunch of other, for many reasons, but also to, but primarily to fulfill the scriptures, to preach and proclaim the good news, to lead us out of darkness, to testify to the truth, to serve and to sacrifice even unto the point of death and to give life to the full. 
But the anticipation of Christ's birth and his life among us 2,000 years ago is only one part of Advent. It is not just about the incarnation. Advent is also a celebration and anticipation of Christ's coming again in glory. He has come already and he will come again. What are we saying? We know how the story ends. We will be with him again. Now you and I, as you know, live in between the space of those two events, between Jesus's first advent 2000 years ago and his second advent, whenever that would be. Like many traditions, There are different ways that Advent is observed, whether it be the lighting of candles, as we did this morning, the singing of certain songs or particular readings. But what each Advent tradition should and probably does have in common is the reminder that Christ has come and that he will come again. I mean, clearly, you and I and everyone else all have traditions and observances and celebrations that we hold dear and that we participate in. And I am not trying to steal the meaning or the significance of your favorite Christmas traditions this morning. Remember that time we went to church and that Dave guy ruined Christmas for us? That's not what's happening. Rather, my hope this morning is to encourage you and to prayerfully reframe the conversation about these things this way. Whatever traditions you observe and celebrate, would you spend time this year focusing on why you are doing them, regardless of their origins? Would you consider and think about why you are doing the things that you are doing around Christmas, regardless of what their origins are? Because my friends, any tradition can become dead and become meaningless unless we understand, consider, and remember who or what those traditions point us to. Putting an evergreen tree in our living room is an odd tradition, unless it reminds us of the everlasting life of God. Christmas lights are always pretty to look at, but if they remind us of Jesus, the light of the world, born to us on Christmas Day, they become infinitely more beautiful. Candy canes become more than just a sweet, minty treat that you suck into a weapon-sized sharp point. Because when they remind, when a candy cane reminds us of our great sinless shepherd who shed his blood on a cross to take away our sin, it becomes something much more than that. My friends, it is the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, mighty God and prince of peace that our hearts and our minds need to be reminded of simply because we forget so quickly. Jesus, my friends, is the what and the why of Christmas and all of its best observances and traditions point to him. And that leads us to our passage today. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Much of this is going to be familiar to most of you, but let me read it for us. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. 
the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, which will be our focus, reads in part, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. There are four identifiers and four attributes of who the promised Messiah would be in verses 6 and 7, but we are going to focus this morning on Wonderful Counselor. What exactly did Isaiah mean by using the word wonderful as, we, as he did here in verse 6? Well, like all four of the adjectives in this passage, it is possible that our modern day understanding of the word wonderful might not fall in line with what the original author intended. So when we say, you and I say wonderful today, we tend to mean really, really good. Wow, that was wonderful. Wow, that was really, really good. It could be that we're talking about a performance. It could be that we're talking about a piece of art or maybe a meal that we have had or the news that we have just heard. But does that definition of wonderful do justice to Isaiah's chosen subject? Is that what Isaiah was trying to communicate? See, the word wonderful used here in verse six comes from the Hebrew word pele. Pele is part of a word set that is used 80 times in the Old Testament. And it is a word that refers to the Lord himself and his works. And curiously, but not accidentally, Pele or wonderful is never attached to man's accomplishments. According to scripture, man cannot be wonderful. Man cannot do wonderful. According to one commentator, Pele is the nearest Hebrew word to the idea of supernatural. Supernatural. Listen to how David used that word in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now listen, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Look at that list in verses one through five and ask yourself, who do I know that can do that? (laughs) Only God who is wonderful, wonderful as used in Psalm 139, Isaiah 9, and dozens of other places in the Old Testament refers to works and wisdom that is beyond human explanation. Something way out of the ordinary, something with overtones of deity. Wonderful, my friends, is how the Christ child born in a manger 2,000 years ago would be defined. And that same definition carries over into the New Testament. So it wasn't just a proclamation of who he would be, but a proclamation of who he is. Listen to how the word wonderful is used in context for Matthew 21, verses 14 through 15. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them, he being Jesus. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant when they saw the wonderful things that he did, they were indignant. In Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus said, 
The stone which the builders rejected has been made the cornerstone. This cornerstone came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Wonderful things, my friends, get our attention. They defy logic and they leave us speechless. Wonderful expresses not only what God does, but who he is. Not just what he does, but who he is. Wonderful counselor. And he will be called wonderful counselor. So then what is meant by the word counselor in this verse? Well, the word counselor translated here comes from the Hebrew word ya'atz. The Hebrew meaning of ya'atz is actually very close to our definition of counselor. It means to advise or to consult. And in its, in its Hebrew context specifically, the word association is that of a king giving counsel to his people. That's generally how it's used in that way. Listen to Micah chapter four, verse nine, as a for instance. Verse nine, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? Now here's how David used that word in the Psalm. Psalm 16, verse seven. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So my friends, isn't it good to know that God desires and promises to give us counsel, to give us wisdom and to advise us. This is his promise to his people. I mean, who in this room could use some wonderful counsel today? Yeah. What decisions do you need to make today? What wilderness are you in? What fork in the road currently stands before you? However it is that you answer those questions, know this, know this. God wants to counsel you and give you his wisdom. He wants to show you the way, his way. He sees it all, he knows it all, and he has a plan in it all for your good and for his glory. This is not a a puzzle that you need to figure out. This is not something that God is trying to keep from you and hide from you. Rather, it is something that he wants to let you in on and give to you in full. Isn't that wonderful? Now, personally, I I love counsel. I need counsel. I would venture to say that as of late, the thing that I have asked for the most from God is his counsel and for his wisdom. Simply simply put, I've recently come out of a somewhat challenging season and and I feel as though God is kind of moving me on from something that I have loved and something that I love and something that I'm gifted in. And he is kind of redirecting my steps to some degree. And I've had lots of affirmation to that end, both from him and from others. But if I'm honest with you, what that next thing is when it is going to happen and how I am going to get there is totally unclear to me. So I need to hear from God. I need to trust in God. I need to depend upon him and rely on him. I desperately need a wonderful counselor. Do you? Friends, in, in 
our pursuit of wisdom and counsel, it's important that we recognize that not all counsel is good. Not all counsel is good. And very little counsel is wonderful. Very little counsel is wonderful. Do you realize, my friends, that the sin that afflicts you and I and the trouble of this world was the result of bad counsel? Everything that is wrong with this world and all the sin that afflicts us is the result of bad counsel. Dating all, going all the way back to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's Genesis 1. But then in Genesis 2, God gave a good command and wise counsel to Adam saying, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then, as we know, just a few verses later, Satan, in the form of a serpent, appeared to Eve with bad and with wicked counsel, saying, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to what? Make one wise. Let's put wise in quotes there. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So Adam and Eve, friends, rejected the commands and the good counsel of God, and instead received and obeyed the counsel of Satan. And as a result, sin, rebellion, and death entered into the world. But God, But God, in his wisdom, foreknowledge, and perfect counsel, already had his plan of redemption in place. A child born to us and a son given. As Charles Spurgeon once said, it was right that the world should have a counselor to restore it if it had a counselor to destroy it. A counselor of wicked and evil ways destroyed this world and a counselor of wonderful ways of righteous ways came to restore it. Now I've seen a professional counselor before, and I would wholeheartedly encourage others to do the same. If needed, there is absolutely no shame in getting help and wise godly counselors are a gift of God's grace to us. But like any human being, they have limits. Here's what I mean. First, professional counselors do not know everything. They are in as much need of counsel and wisdom and guidance as any of us. But not so with God. Not so with God. He alone is all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. He does not need to be instructed. Secondarily, my counselor sat across from me. 
And I had to tell him what I was going through, but not God. God lives in me and he knows me completely, even better than I know myself. My friends, Christ alone knows completely how we feel. He knows what it is that we need. And he knows when we need it, even before we ask. Third, my counselor was unable to to relate to what it was that I was going through simply because my trouble was not his. But not so with God. According to the book of Hebrews, in Jesus Christ, we have one who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses and temptations. Whatever it is that you have gone through, are going through, or will go through, understand, my friends, that Jesus himself has been through it too. Fourth, the counselor that I met with required an appointment. But not God. He's always available. And he's always ready to listen and to help and advise. And then finally, the counselor that I saw charged me money for our sessions. (laughs) They'll do that. (laughs) But not God. Not God. Do you know why? Because for those in Christ, any debt owed to God has been paid in full in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Any debt. My brothers and sisters, Christ alone is wonderful counselor. But are you and I humble enough to ask for the counsel that he offers? Are we willing to say, I don't know? I don't know. And then are we willing, upon having received his counsel, to receive and obey it, however it comes? and whenever it comes. Because Jesus' invitation to every man, woman, and child is come to me, ask me, pray to me. And amazingly, he even provides the desire that we have to come to him and seek him and ask him when in our pride, we otherwise would not. Oh, he's probably too busy. Oh, this is probably too small of a thing for him. Oh, I think I can get this thing figured out by myself. No. No, humble yourself and trust God's spirit to move you and guide you and lead you to pray and seek and ask because God knows what is best for you and I. There are several tragic, tragic moments in the gospels where somebody asks Jesus for counsel and in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, he gives it to them, but they don't receive it and they don't obey it. They ask Jesus a question. He gives an answer that they don't want to hear. And then they walk away. So let me ask you a question this morning. When life looks like it might be changing and you're wondering which way to go, what to do, and how, or how to get there, is it God that you seek? Is it God that you seek? Is it his counsel that you desire most? Or do you first try to figure things out on your own and go the way that makes most sense to you? When God makes it clear then what you ought to do or what it is that you ought not do, do you listen to him? Do you obey? 
Are you living independently or are you living God dependently? Ask yourself today, am I truly seeking out and heeding God's wonderful counselor, even in the smallest of things? Because my friends, both he and his counsel are always best and they're always available to us. They are available to us in his word, by his spirit, and in his son. Listen to Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. In John 14, we learn about his counsel from his spirit, where Jesus says, But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. How many things does it say? All things. And we'll remind you of how much that Jesus said. All. All is a complete word. That means nothing left out. He will teach you all things. And he will remind you of all that Jesus has said. And then finally, we find God's counsel in his son. First Corinthians chapter one reads, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. One of my favorite stories about God's counsel is found in first Kings chapter three. Beginning in verse five, this is a story of Solomon first becoming king, this Solomon, the son of David. And beginning in verse five, it reads, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. That is a green light there, friends. Imagine God coming to you and saying, ask for what you want. And verse six, we read, and Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, but he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. This is his answer to ask what I shall give you. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? And listen to this, chapter, verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. We have a young new king who calls himself a little child, but he's following in the footsteps of his father, David, and God gave Solomon the green light to ask for anything he wanted. And Solomon asked for wisdom. He asked for counsel. He could have asked for health. He could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for power or the destruction of his enemies or anything else that you and I would be tempted to ask for. But 
But Solomon asked for the counsel of God, a wonderful counselor. And according to verse 12, God gave Solomon wisdom that is unlike any before or after him. But do you know, my friends, there is even more reason to be encouraged for you and I? Even more reason to be encouraged than even Solomon was. God in his grace and in his mercy has given us even more than he has given Solomon. God knows that you and I also need what Solomon asked for. He knows that we need his counsel and we need his wisdom, whether or not we realize it, seek it, or obey it. But he also knows that we need to know him, not just his counsel, not just his wisdom, but him personally. And so a wonderful counselor in the form of a baby is who God gave us in his son. He gave us one who personifies wisdom, teaching us that wisdom is not so much of a what as it is a who. Wisdom is a man in God named Jesus Christ. He is wisdom. Paul wrote in Colossians 2, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The full riches of complete understanding, the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is who we have been given in Jesus Christ, in Emmanuel, in God with us. God gave us one who understands the mysteries of God, the only one who could reveal how wonderful God and his works actually are because in perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus was and is God. We have been given a wonderful counselor who would show us God because he and the Father are one. And he would show us how to live a life in, with, and for God, dependent upon the Father, forever indwelled by the Spirit, just as Jesus was. So my friends, when you consider all this, when you consider the nativity of Jesus, are you finding yourself filled with wonder? This is how you came to us, God? As a baby born in a feeding trough, not in a palace, to be coddled and tended to and cared for by the very ones that you made into a world that would not look for you or recognize you, even though it was created by you. This is the upside down life that you call us to God, that the first would be last and the last would be first, that the greatest among us would be the servant to all. This is who you are, Jesus that you, the author of life, would write yourself into the mess that we made to rescue us. That you, the righteous, holy, and glorious one, would ransom your life on a cross for our sins and fill us with eternal life through your resurrection. The Spirit of God cries out as our hearts should. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't he wonderful? But apart from the Spirit's counsel and his revelation to us, this all seems foolish, doesn't it? I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul said that it would. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's that personification. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. (laughs) Think of that. As smart as human beings can be, that's as dumb as God can be. That's the gap we're talking about here. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And so that no one may boast before him. No one may boast before him. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. God in his wonderful counsel, my friends, sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, fully man and fully God. And he revealed him to the lowly, the simple, the despised, and the humble. Isn't that what Corinthians just said? And the wonders and the wisdom of Jesus astonished all who saw and heard him right up unto his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven. Even to this day, now thousands of years And thousands of miles away from where and when all of this happened, he is still wonderful and he is still counselor and he still astonishes. And one day, because God has ordained it, we who are disciples of Jesus Christ will see our wonderful counselor face to face in his second advent. But until that day, my friends, we have a loving and wonderful counselor and a sympathetic high priest to turn to to boast of, and to trust in. This Christmas season, friends, may our affections be stirred for him. May our hearts and our minds be reminded of him. May all that we say and do be for his glory and for his praise. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give you praise and thanks this morning for Emmanuel that you got in and through your son and by your spirit are with and in us, that you came to us in a way that we could not have anticipated and you gave to us what we were not wise enough to ask for. As we live in this world, remind us that we are not of it and that our true citizenship is in heaven with you. Would you help us to live well between your two advents, remembering that you have already come and you will come again for those who are yours. May we declare the good news of your gospel to those who have not heard or received it? Would you remind us that it is by grace that we are saved and it is your grace that we need to extend to one another? Father, we confess today that we need Jesus, our wonderful counselor, to be wisdom to us, to reveal the mysteries of this world and the one to come. And we need him to be a light unto our path. So where we are confused and afflicted, would you bring clarity and peace? Where we are haughty and self-sufficient, would you humble us and cause us to rely on Allow the sights and the sounds and the smells and traditions of this Christmas season point us so clearly to you, to the wonders of who you are and what it is that you have done in Christ. Father, we recognize that the baby who was born in a manger was in fact born to die in our place so that we might stand righteous before you and have eternal life. Father, we long to be 
where the praise is never ending. But until that day, would you love through us, live through us, and lead through us. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name.